I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which from personal experience I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. Good morning, Prakaptan. I hope you're well. Today, we're going to talk about regret because a listener on Spotify, PG Hagen, has left a comment asking for an episode on this topic, and I don't think I've actually covered it before. It is a little fortuitous as I myself am experiencing some regret as of late in my personal life, and I think that either puts me in the perfect position to create an episode like this or (laughs) the worst position due to bias, perhaps. But the only way I can find out is to create an episode and see what happens. Will you hail it as a triumph in the episodic catalog that is this podcast, or will it be drug out into the middle of the street and, to quote Garfield, shot? Yes, Garfield really said that. Before we dive in, I do have some thanks to give to new patrons. I have set a goal this year to get a 1,000 Patreon supporters by the end of the year. A 1,000, by the way, is 1% of the present listener base, so fingers crossed that this is a reasonable expectation. But don't rest on your haunches if you'd like to see me achieve this goal. It's not a guarantee that if you don't act, that someone else will. So if you can afford to do it and you're inclined to do it, I hope you'll become a patron of my work. Special thanks today to John Clark, Evan Culp, Pen Commissar, Warrior Spirit, Burnout, I know that feeling, Graham Barwick, Kyle Bassett, Greg Chambers, Kyle Newton, and Jack Rothmel. Thank you very much to you few. I appreciate the support and I hope you're enjoying the perks of patronage like the private call with Will Johncock that we had Wednesday night where we found out that Will was both a French literature aficionado and translator of old texts that are only available in French and a techno music enthusiast. And to all of you who are not patrons and didn't get to hear that conversation, I think you should know that Will Johncock has just had a baby and he has started a podcast all about techno music, which I still find very funny but also cute because he's done it to share his love of techno music with his kid. The name of the podcast is Techno Umbilico, like umbilical cord, and it's really good, I think, from a production standpoint, even though I'm not a big techno fan. I think it's a really good podcast. There's a link in the show notes of this episode, so if you would like to go check out Will John Cox's techno podcast, which are words I never thought would come out of my mouth, please go ahead and do that. It is actually quite good. And now, since all of that has been a bunch of content that isn't the episode, let's cut for our customary two-ad break, if we have two ads to stick in those slots, and then you will rejoin me to talk about regret. Stay with me. 
History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which from personal experience I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. In his Letters of Consolation to Marcia, Seneca says a lot about grief and death and mourning, as he was, in his own way, attempting to console Marcia over the loss of her son. If you've not read this letter, you might want to consider doing that. While the word regret is only mentioned once or twice in the entirety of the text, I do think that the sorts of emotions that come up around death are tied into regret. Maybe they're under the umbrella of regret, because one cannot help but feel regret when someone is unexpectedly lost. So I'm going to start with an excerpt from what I think is the sixth or seventh section of that long letter or multiple letters. I guess it was multiple letters. And there were something like 30 sections, whether this was one letter or 30 separate letters. Seneca has a really hard time being brief. I think we've learned that in the past. And this poor woman, Marcia, probably forgot that her son died by the time she was done reading, I swear to you. I had to do a word count, the 14,000 plus word quote unquote letter. I mean, for heck's sake. Anyway, here's the excerpt. But you say, sorrow for the loss of one's own child is natural. Who denies it, provided it be reasonable? For we cannot help feeling a pang, and the stoutest hearted of us are cast down not only at the death of those dearest to us, but even when they leave us on a journey. I know if I dug further, I would find more excerpts from more Stoics talking about this sort of thing, talking about sorrow and agreeing that it is natural. 
But I want to play something like Devil's Advocate here, or perhaps not exactly that, but I want to discuss the idea of regret in the framing of death and loss, because I think all regret stems from loss of one kind or another. Loss of a life, a friend, an opportunity, a favorite thing, a relationship. Some of these are not deaths in the most dramatic sense, but they are deaths of a kind. They are the ending of things. I don't think it's possible to regret something that hasn't died or otherwise been lost. So I'm coming at this episode from that perspective. A listener of this podcast, her name is Ruth, hi Ruth, recently asked a question that I found very insightful. It was something like, if we're using stoicism to live according to our nature, but our nature is the very thing we're trying to change, isn't this a contradiction? The answer to that question, in my opinion, is that we're not trying to change our nature. Instead, we're trying to realize it by working to change our character, to bring it into line with the nature that our human consciousness and untamed minds get in the way of us effortlessly expressing, realizing, or embodying. I think there's something similar going on with the idea of regret if we were to ask the question, is regret natural? It is certainly normative in that to never feel regret as a human being would make someone quite an outlier in comparison to every other human being. But if we are living in accordance with nature, is regret natural or is it something we as human beings have normalized? Is it a manifestation of a mind that is not yet in full alignment with nature, not yet a sage? I think the answer to this is yes, obviously yes. If we were sages, we wouldn't feel regret because we would be in such alignment with our nature as rational beings, that is to say we would be perfectly rational and perfectly moral, that's what a sage is, we couldn't see opportunities as being lost or deaths as being unfair or bad or ended relationships as being negative. We wouldn't be capable of seeing things through such a lens because we would, in a sense, know better. But is sage-like behavior what we should expect of one another and of ourselves, or is it simply an ideal we should all personally keep in mind to consider that there might always be a way to do something better, and so maybe we should re-examine how we're doing things presently? But to expect others or ourselves to hit that bullseye perfectly every time is like expecting someone or ourselves to be perfect all the time, or at all, even once, And so ultimately, probably isn't that empowering, practical, or rational. It's not rational to expect perfection when you're not already perfect of yourself or of others. So it's not rational to expect imperfect people not to feel regret, but it is irrational not to examine whatever regret we might feel through the lens of, there is a way to view this differently so that we don't regret it, and perhaps we should spend some time figuring out what that way is. Now, notice that this is a lot different than saying you're a big, lame, fake stoic if you regret things, or you're a big, wussy baby pants because it's not rational to feel regret. It's not rational as a sage, sure, but it's certainly reasonable as Prokoptan, and I think that makes it even rational in that it can't be avoided, really, as Prokoptan. So how should we view regret as Stoics? Scratch that. How should we view regret as Prokoptan? 
How should we think about regret as people who are trying to become sages or who desire to express sage-like behavior whenever possible, but who also realize that they'll never be sages and that sagehood is very likely not even a truly achievable thing? How do we think about regret as real-life people trying our best? My answer here is as a nexus, I think, as a crossroads at which we get to make a choice to consider the other ways we could be looking at something. As an example, someone dies. We miss them. We regret their death. We regret that we didn't spend more time with them. We regret that we forgot their last birthday. We are overwhelmed with all the things we feel we messed up or did wrong. We can never make amends the opportunity is lost. How do we act in such a situation as Prakapton? I think we can start by asking, for whose sake am I regretting things? Is it for our own sake? If it's for our own sake, what purpose is it serving? If it's not serving a purpose, why are we fixating on it? This isn't going to stop regret in its tracks. It's not like a magic spell you've just cast and all of a sudden your regret is gone. But asking these sorts of questions, when they make sense to ask, can do something to disrupt our chain of reasoning and snap us out of what could become a downward spiral for just long enough to try to rethink the feelings we're having. Why regret for the few things you mucked up and not instead feel gratitude for the many more things that were wonderful and joyous. Why not? Steve's dead. But remember that camping trip? I'm overwhelmed with gratitude that Steve got to experience those moments with me and his other friends before he died. Steve's life was so much better as a result of those few moments and countless others. That's a different way of thinking about it. You can choose to regret the 100 things you did wrong, for example, throughout Steve's life. But that is really all about you and nothing to do with Steve. Or you can choose to celebrate all the things that wouldn't have happened for Steve had he died earlier. Thank goodness Steve died this Christmas and not last Christmas, because remember that sledding trip? Man, what a joy, what a great thing that he got to experience that trip before the end. This is, of course, not the first angle you'll find yourself looking at things from, but it is an angle you can find, and maybe you should take the time to find it. But what if you're regretting things for Steve? What if Steve had an absolutely terrible life, and you wish he'd lived longer to come out of the darkness and into a happier existence? I'll start by saying that this sort of regret seems much more noble. You're sad for Steve rather than for yourself or about Steve and that's worth recognizing. But how rational is this sort of regret? It could be rational. You could be realizing that you were part of oppressing Steve and keeping him in a bad situation for a long time. And if it weren't for you, Steve would have been more free. Steve's death has awoken in you a shortcoming you never realized you had. And because you never realized it, from your perspective in these moments, Steve suffered. Or maybe your bad choice killed Steve. Maybe you drove drunk and Steve was your passenger and you wrecked on the interstate and he died in the crash. Maybe Steve even begged you that day not to drive, but you forced the keys away from him and told him you were fine. This sort of thing has happened to people in the past. It's not a far-fetched scenario. Clearly, there would be a whole lot of regret to have here, and I think it would be reasonable regret to have. 
And it would be about you and your guilt, but it would also be about Steve and a life you were involved in cutting short or reducing the overall quality of. Again, this is not a far-fetched scenario. It's not helpful in such situations to say coldly, death is an indifferent. Joy and happiness and a pleasurable life are achievable even if you were a slave. So it's not my fault Steve was unhappy or died early. He should have just been more stoic. All the things I did to him and everything I prevented him from doing in his life should have no impact on his character. And if they did, that was his choice. I'm totally fine. Anyone who would tell you something like this would have a poor understanding of Stoicism and would be absolutely scrupulous. It is correct from a strictly Stoic perspective that death is an indifferent, suffering is an indifferent, and subjugation by a cruel master is an indifferent, because the only thing that can really be hurt is one's character and virtue, which no external can touch. So yeah, that's true, but it's only reasonable to expect of the sage to be able to feel this way about things properly, appropriately. Remember, for everyone else, the sage and sage-like behavior consistently all the time is an ideal they're striving for in order to help them adapt, grow, endure, etc. It's not reasonable to expect that anyone who isn't a sage think like this or try to run their lives this way. You can't be a sage on Monday and then not be on Tuesday, and that means that you can't look at any situation like the death of your friend Steve from the sage's perspective without being a sage. There will be too many holes in your, let's call it a strategy for thinking about this. Because you're not a sage, you won't know they're there because you're not a sage. And so you'll wind up with something you think is a stoic approach and then it's not. In situations like these, where you are directly or indirectly responsible for your friend's death, as an example, you've got to take responsibility. You feel bad. Good. You should feel bad. You feel regret. Good. You should. And these feelings are the biggest opportunity of your life to show that you're not the same person anymore, to show that you care about doing better, to show that you can commit to being different, and to show that you are capable of being more mindful about the world around you and your place in it. Feeling bad, feeling regret, is something like an indicator, a reminder that the way you've been is not reflective of your real ambitions to build towards a good character. And now your regret ought to transform into something more like fuel or motivation or a scar that you'll heal over and become a better person because of. I think this is the best way to deal with genuine regret that is about how you've failed others and thus failed yourself or vice versa. Also, and perhaps more kindly, you can choose to remind yourself that the person you were then isn't the person you are now. You were then not on the Prokoptan journey. You were a madman. Or perhaps you were just an imperfect, less journeyed Stoic, less of a Stoic than you are now. Remember what Epictetus said, an ignorant person is inclined to blame others for his own misfortune. To blame oneself is proof of progress, but the wise man never has to blame another or himself. Do you remember this? I don't exactly remember where it's from. It's probably from the Enchiridion or something. But if you've not heard this before, now you have. And the idea is that if you're a madman, you're going to blame everybody for what's happening to you. If you're a student, 
trying to work towards the attainment of virtue, then you're more likely to blame yourself. But if you're a sage, you've got no one to blame. The wise man never blames themselves because, well, the sage would never make a mistake worthy of blame for one, wax apples notwithstanding. Just Google wax apples stoicism if you don't understand that reference. But sages can make mistakes, just not moral or rational mistakes. If they fall for a cunning trick, that might be a mistake in the contemporary sense of the word, like, whoops, but it's not a moral or logical mistake, a rational mistake, if making the mistake involved no moral or logical errors. In such a situation, a sage wouldn't blame themselves, and they wouldn't blame the trickster, because, for one, they have nothing to blame themselves for. They didn't make a logical or moral error in making their decision to trust the trickster. And two, the person who tricked them is simply an imperfect person who doesn't know any better than to go around deceiving people. So what is there to blame? So you, being quasi-responsible for the death of your friend, or even maybe directly responsible, as is the case with the drunk driving car accident that we're talking about in this episode, this is an example of you simply being an imperfect person capable of mucking things up capable of committing moral and logical errors. How can you blame yourself for that? You can and should take accountability for it. You can and should own it as the moral and logical error that it was. But you can, at the same time, recognize that you are not the sum total of all your moral and logical errors any more than you are the sum total of all the times you were rightly moral and rightly logical. You are not a sage. You are prokopton. You are a student. You're failing. You're learning. You're getting better and sucking less and less, hopefully, along that journey. Although, to be fair, it's not always a linear journey. You can't let a thing you did in the past, due to being a non-sage, have control over what you are in the present moment and what you are capable of becoming in the future. So you were the sort of person, in our example, that drove drunk with your friend, and as a result, your friend died. You're not a murderer, though people might call you that. Instead, you're a person who has come face to face with a terrible truth about yourself, and there have been consequences tied up in that. That truth is that you are not straightened out. You are not good enough yet. You are ignorant. You are irrational. You've got a lot of work to do. And whether or not taking this example to a further extreme, you're sentenced to 30 years for involuntary vehicular manslaughter under the influence, that's got nothing to do with the sort of person you become based on what these present moments are teaching you, are bringing to light about what you need to work on and how you are deficient. Now, of course, the public, and I don't just mean in situations as extreme as the example I'm laying out, I mean all the time for every public, moral, or logical error you make, has no patience for your journey. They want you to suffer frequently. They want you to be shown as the worst parts of yourself so that they can direct everyone's attention, including their own frequently, away from themselves and towards a moment in time that they can judge as being something they would never do. You're a distraction to everybody else who doesn't want to pay attention to their own broken BS. 
But burning down the Capitol, kicking a stork's nest, betraying your parents, even involuntary vehicular manslaughter under the influence is all rooted in the same basic error or ignorance. You do not know how to be morally and rationally perfect. You're not a sage. You choose imperfectly, you think imperfectly, and you act imperfectly. But your choices are entirely your own, as is your choice to do something to become the sort of person who chooses better than they have chosen in the past. So, really, what is there to regret? I dare say only the choice you make right this moment whether or not to get better at living your life. And when you fail at that, as you will, frequently, Guess what? The very next moment affords you the same opportunity. So if you want to kill regret, first take responsibility for the reality you've created for yourself through your choices, and then start choosing differently. That is how you deal with regret as a Stoic. And in truth, how I think you should deal with regret as a human being. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I appreciate you being here every Monday and Friday to listen to new episodes, if in fact those are the days you show up to listen to them. But it's a podcast, right? You can show up whenever you want. If you're not yet a supporter of my work and you would like to become one and support my efforts to do this sort of work full-time in a way that's stable for me and my family, you can go to stoicismpod.com forward slash members and do so for just $5 a month. You'll get ad-free access to the podcast and a bunch of other things things which you'll probably find valuable. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. If you're listening on Spotify, be sure to leave your comments and thoughts on today's episode right there below the episode in the comment form. And until next time, take care.